I'm Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Enjoy the episode. So today on CardioScripts, we are once again joined by Dr. John Lindsley to talk about the second or cohort A portion of the popular TAVI trial. So just to reintroduce Dr. Lindsley, he completed his PGY-1 pharmacy residency at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center and his PGY-2 cardiology residency at The Ohio State University Medical Center. He's currently a clinical pharmacy specialist in the cardiac care unit at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, and serves as the PGY-2 cardiology program director. And John, thank you so much for taking time once again to join us here on CardioScripts today. As mentioned, we are going to review the popular TAVI trial. Last time John joined us, we went over cohort B. That cohort was published in April of 2020 in New England Journal of Medicine. Um, But if you recall, cohort B assessed clopidogrel and oral anticoagulation versus oral anticoagulation monotherapy, and it resulted ultimately in no difference in ischemic events, but their primary outcomes were really looking at bleeding, and they did find a lower incidence of bleeding with just oral anticoagulation monotherapy. Today, we're talking about cohort A, and this was presented at the European Society of Cardiology Congress 2020 meeting and published simultaneously in the New England Journal of Medicine. And cohort A compared aspirin monotherapy versus dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel in patients who were receiving a transaortic valve implantation, or TAVI, and had no indication for long-term anticoagulation. So this was a randomized, open-label, multi-center trial, and patients were randomly assigned uh, at least one day or no more than 90 days before TAVI in a one-to-one ratio to aspirin alone or dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel for three months after TAVI, followed by aspirin monotherapy for the duration of the trial, and then it was recommended they continue the aspirin uh, lifelong. Aspirin was loaded in those not initially on aspirin at a dose of 300 milligrams, and then subsequently followed by somewhere between 80 to 100 milligrams daily. Clopidogrel was loaded for those who were randomized to that arm with a loading dose of 300 milligrams one day before or on the day of TAVI, followed by 75 milligrams daily for three months. Patients also received unfractionated heparin for anticoagulation during the procedure. They developed AFib after TAVI. Oral anticoagulation was initiated with a vitamin K antagonist or a direct oral anticoagulant, and coordinators recommended that oral anticoagulation replace aspirin and, if applicable, be prescribed with clopidogrel. Patients were included if they were scheduled to undergo TAVI and had no indication for long-term oral anticoagulation. Patients were excluded, similar to what we saw with cohort B, if they had an implantation of a drug-eluting stent within three months or a bare metal stent within one month before TAVI. There were two primary outcomes, again, similar to cohort B. They looked at all bleeding, and this included minor, major, and life-threatening or disabling bleeding. And they also looked at non-procedure-related bleeding over a period of 12 months. The trial was also powered for the first secondary outcome to detect non-inferiority And this secondary outcome was composed of bleeding or thromboembolic events, which included cardiovascular death, non-procedure-related bleeding, stroke from any cause, or myocardial infarction. So there were 690 patients that were randomized, but 665 patients who were included in the modified intention-to-treat analysis. So 331 were randomized to aspirin monotherapy and 334 to aspirin and clopidogrel. 
The mean age was roughly 80 years, about 50% were female, about 65% were NYHA class three or four. The mean STS score was about 2.5. 76% of those who received the TAVI had normal flow or high gradient aortic stenosis. About 75% had hypertension. About a quarter of patients had diabetes and about 40% coronary artery disease. Three quarters of patients had a left ventricular ejection fraction greater than 50%. And 90% of patients received their TAVI transfemorally and 8% via the transapical route. 45% received a sapien 3 valve, about a quarter of patients a core valve Evolute R, and about 10% a core valve Evolute Pro. Clopidogrel adherence was 89.2%, and the median exposure to clopidogrel was 92 days. Oral anticoagulation was started in 13.3% of patients in the aspirin alone group and 9.6% of patients in the aspirin clopidogrel group at a median of 12 days and 6 days respectively. And the main indication for oral anticoagulation was new onset atrial fibrillation. In terms of the results, all bleeding occurred in 15.1% and 26.6% of patients receiving aspirin alone and the combination of aspirin and clopidogrel respectively, and this was found to be a statistically significant difference. With regards to non-procedure-related bleeding, this occurred in 15.1% and 24.9% of patients in the aspirin alone and the aspirin and clopidogrel groups respectively, and this was also found to be a statistically significant difference. For the first secondary composite outcome, and again, just to remind you, this included bleeding, cardiovascular death, non-procedure-related bleeding, stroke from any cause, or MI, aspirin alone was found to be non-inferior and superior with the outcome occurring in 23% and 31.3% of patients in the aspirin alone and the aspirin plus clopidogrel groups, respectively. The secondary composite 2 endpoint, which consisted of thromboembolic events such as cardiovascular disease, ischemic stroke, or MI, was also found to be non-inferior between groups. And so that is cohort A of the popular TAVI trial. And so, John, after reading through this and thinking back to cohort B, what are your overall thoughts about this particular cohort? Yeah, so I think the cohort of patients that were included in uh, cohort A, you know, match our general approach, uh, general patients that are included in TAVI procedures, notably kicking out anyone who has atrial fibrillation at baseline and anyone who's received a, you know, a recent PCI with, with stenting, uh, as you noted. So I think overall, if we look at the characteristics of those patients, you know, 80 years old, 50-50 male, female, New York Heart Association class, you know, three, four symptoms in patients, they're a pretty standard TAVI patient cohort. The outcomes, I think, are the same that were presented in the, the cohort B. And again, this leads to probably the biggest talking point uh, regarding it, which is uh, using bleeding as, as our primary endpoint. And I think, again, we have to note that in order to find, you know, a thrombotic uh, or a thromboembolic event rate in a TAVI patient population would just include a huge number of patients in order to try to find any difference. And bleeding happens with, with a relative decent amount of, of frequency. And, uh, and therefore, I think, is why we can, we can use that as one of our outcomes. I do think the bleeding that was that did occur mostly is while defined by the trial as non-procedure related is really all procedure related at the same time, right? Just based on their definitions, right? So when they look at the, um, the bark type four procedure related bleeding, these are huge bleeds, 
right? So we're talking about ICH, five units of blood within 48 hours, chest tube output of two liters. People who have TAVR don't, don't bleed like that with any kind of frequency, right? That this is, these are super rare occurrences, I think. So, right. When we look at the types of bleeding, when you go into um, kind of that, that any bleeding, a large number of these are going to be access site related bleeding. So I think it's greater than 50% in, in both. So 58% of the aspirin patients had access site related bleeding in their non-procedure uh, bleeding and 54% in the DAP. So more than 50% of patients are basically having the proceduralist hold more pressure at the site, spend more time there, uh, maybe put a stitch in, not terribly clinically concerning bleeding, but um, but annoying bleeding really, right? That, that someone has to attend to, but probably doesn't change the outcome for the patient very much. When we think about the thromboembolic event rate, I think it's low, but there's some interesting things, I think, when we talk about the timeframes and what's looked at. So, right, we were giving DAP for three months and the primary endpoint is 12 months. So it's, it's an interesting kind of, we treat for three months and we're hoping that we prevent events at 12 months. And I, and I understand why, you know, endothelialization of the, the, the stent, et cetera, of the TAVR would occur by then. And so therefore we're, we're trying to say that during that time frame we might, that's when we would, uh, you know, be able to highest risk for these, for these events. But I think it's an interesting idea that we just don't set the outcome for three months. And then after that, you know, our patients are similar. I guess you could suggest that smaller thromboembolic events are happening or reduced leaflet motion on the valves is occurring during that three months and you wouldn't see the event until after. So, so potentially that's one of the reasons why powering it for 12 months you know, that outcome that, at that time frame is maybe the right thing to do. So overall, I think for an initial kind of thought is bleeding is driving events for the primary endpoint and that there are a few thromboembolic events so that at least to start, we know that by dropping clopidogrel that you will decrease this primary outcome of bleeding for patients who undergo TAVR. So John, do you have any thoughts or is it an important point to make that they didn't mandate CT imaging to detect that subclinical valve thrombosis? I mean, I guess if you look at the ischemic stroke from what we see, even though it wasn't powered for that outcome, um, there's not really a huge difference between the two arms. So maybe that's a nice. Right. So, that. Yeah. And that's actually one of the kind of critiques, I think. I think it's hard to send everyone for a CT and, and do that. And at, at what point do you, you know, go ahead and say, we want to see if there's some subclinical valve thrombosis and reduced leaflet motion, et cetera, on the valve, but for the valves. We do know that there is an uh, observational registry uh, data trial, uh, I believe out of Cedars, that looked at over 900 patients who underwent CT after their TAVR. They um, evaluated leaflet thrombosis and looked at those who end up having reduced motion on their leaflets versus those who had considered normal uh, motion on their leaflets. And they looked at some AC practices, et cetera. And from that, they basically found that any anticoagulation compared to no anticoagulation or single antiplatelet or dual antiplatelet was uh, superior in terms of having less patients develop a reduced leaflet motion. Um, and that there was no difference in the group of patients who ended up with a single antiplatelet versus a dual antiplatelet. So I think that's interesting to me. So I think if we are saying that anybody should get any antiplatelet therapy, maybe two antiplatelets alone aren't enough 
And so maybe a single is fine if you think your patient shouldn't get anticoagulation. And then the, the clinical you know, outcome that we see for patients is that in that same cohort, they found that those patients with reduced motion on their leaflets ended up having more TIAs. So there is a clinical outcome associated with having reduced motion uh, on, your, on your leaflets as well. Again, retrospective, I mean, observational registry data so there could be some things about those patients, right, that aren't really teased out, but interesting and potentially concerning um, in terms of choosing, uh, you know, in terms of your choice of antiplatelet therapy or antithrombotic therapy. So do you anticipate that there's going to be changes in our antiplatelet management strategies for our TAVI patients after this cohort A uh, came out. So are people going to be comfortable doing monotherapy with aspirin just right out of the gate with our TAVI patients? Or is this something yeah. that you've, that you've already started seeing? Um, no, <laughs> um, no, I haven't seen us do um, a bunch of single antiplatelet therapy outside of those patients who we've just deemed high risk for bleeding for whatever the reason is, you know, some of it is, um, I, I call it like the door test patient provides a history that sounds like they've had bad bleeding events. They had a GI bleed, but it was like 10 years ago now. And so these types of things, I think always lend people to kind of um, be hesitant in providing that dual antiplatelet therapy, but as like a standard across the board, uh, we haven't just simply gone to single antiplatelet therapy. I, I think people are going to be hesitant to do it. I wonder if there's some differences in terms of timing of, of clopidogrel initiation. Like, do we need to give a 300 milligram loading dose the day before? Uh, do we think that there's a high risk of thromboembolic events and clot on the valve immediately upon implantation? I'm not sure. And maybe, maybe we would get rid of a lot of this kind of access site bleeding if we you waited 48 hours and gave the load. And this is totally speculative and and not and and right and not kind of met with any kind of good data. I, I'm just thinking like we're seeing the bleeding happens early, and so if we say that we think we're getting a benefit from this addition of a P2I12 inhibitor, does it need to be at the time of uh, valve implantation? And I don't I don't know that we know that that the risk is early in terms of a thrombo a thromboembolic event. I don't believe that to be the case, right? When we put in mechanical valves, we don't say people need to be anticoagulated in 24 hours, 48 hours, right? Those people are, those patients are bleeding in the post-op setting, right? They are oftentimes, we're holding, we're waiting 24, 48, 72 hours until a chest tube output's done and we're pulling those and moving through that, that motion in, in order to get them on anticoagulation, right? And it might take a week before they're fully anticoagulated. And we don't think that those people, you know, who undergo a surgical procedure are having a huge risk up front. Obviously, at some point, we want them to be anticoagulated, but we're not saying they need to be uh, inhibited or on an antithrombotic at the time of implantation. Any final thoughts, any takeaways you want the listeners to, to walk away with? Yeah, I, th I think that with the cohort A and the cohort B and then the river roxaban data at, at uh, low dose, and I think coming up, we're going to have data that looks at a Pixaban use in uh, TAVR that we're just going to continue to have more data and that the practice surrounding antithrombotic and antiplatelet therapy in TAVR, I think will continue to, to evolve and change, hopefully to kind of find that balance of bleeding risk while still protecting the, our patients from, from any kind of thromboembolic uh, event that happens. And so I think over the next couple of years, we're going to we'll hopefully have a 
a more definitive answer in terms of what's really the best thing to do. Thank you again, John, so much for taking time to come back and talk a little bit more about antithrombotic management in our TAVI patients. Thanks. It was great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.